The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Guyot. I'm particularly excited for this conversation because Andre is the one who got me started on Twitter Spaces before it was even publicly live. This will be on all your favorite podcast platforms under that Lead Lag Live banner. With all that said, my name is Michael Gayet, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Join me for the hours, Mr. Andre Jean-Pierre. Andre, I am a big fan of yours. Um, I'd like to get you to get the audience to be familiar with you. Introduce yourself. Who are you? How'd you get interested in markets, involved in markets, and how in the world did you get involved with spaces at the very beginning? Oh my gosh, it's such a, a great question. It's a, an even better story for for both of them. Um, I'll start with getting involved with with spaces, which you know I just kind of tripped into living out here uh, in New York City. I had a couple of buddies that, that worked at Twitter. So if we rewind to the middle of the pandemic, everybody's at home bored out of their mind, nothing to do, no social activities uh, to speak of. Everyone's going crazy with their kids. Everyone's going nuts with their spouse at home. And everyone was looking for an outlet. Fast forward, I get an invite to the app, um, what's the the social audio app. Uh, the Clubhouse. Clubhouse, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah which was invite only. It was um, something to do. And it was amazing. It was a, a little spark, I think, that they they captured during the pandemic that was, you know, live audio, being able to connect with people while at home, not being exposed, but have interesting conversations like you're having now in twist, uh, Twitter spaces. Fast forward about four months uh, of clubhouse conversations being viral on uh Twitter, Twitter releases their product, Twitter Spaces, and I get an invite from a buddy of mine who was at Twitter at the time, no longer. I feel like the entire staff at Twitter has turned turned over since uh, I, I've been over there and, and visited Twitter HQ, but they, they launched Twitter Spaces. I'm one of the first 100 uh, hosts, uh, or no, 300 hosts that have access to the feature. So speaking directly with the develop the dev team over there they got a lot of feedback from us and i was actually one of the only people that was a host that had experience doing seminars in real life teaching in real life leading conversations in real life and it it kind of transpired to me being one of the original hosts on spaces 
and took off from there. It was a, a small community at first. Uh, if you joined a Twitter space, you'd lucky you'd be lucky to see maybe 20, 30 people. And it was a, a closed knit community until they launched it, you know, out to the public. I believe a couple of months later. But Mike, I think I, I Michael, I think I reached out to you probably about three or four months in when I started to uh, want to expand the conversations that were being held on Twitter spaces. I reached out to you, you being the the forward thinking, forward seeing person that you were, you jumped right on it. Um, you were able to, I guess, craft it into your own experience. I loved it. And um, I, I see you've taken, I love the fact that you've taken it, molded your own, and you were actually one of the, the people when I went to Twitter HQ that they spoke about, like really moving the product forward and was a blueprint for how they would develop the app in the future. So I love that for you. But that that was a real interesting time and spaces originally. Of course, you know, you give people a microphone and you're going to hear a lot of people that probably shouldn't have a microphone. I'd definitely say that if there was uh, a top 100 people to listen to on Twitter, I, I, I definitely include you in that group, and I'm glad that I was able to introduce you to the product. I'm curious, are, um, you said your friends are no longer there. Twitter, is that uh, pre-Musk or post-Musk? Uh, some pre-Musk, most uh, post-Musk. I was actually invited to Twitter HQ twice to speak about the product and how they would be looking forward to developing it in the future. I think those plans were scrapped. I'll send you maybe a tweet. I'll find it with uh, some shots of me at Twitter HQ speaking to the staff uh, of Spaces. But yeah, the Spaces team is is pretty much gutted. I'm, I'm glad that it's still operational. But yeah, it's totally different. Most were post-Musk. Some after he joined, but some as soon as he announced that uh, he was purchasing the company. And talk about your, your background and, and how you got involved and interested in, in the financial space. Okay, well, I think that's a, a cool story as well. And thanks for asking. So, long story short, I'm out here in in, in New York City. Um, I went to school out here in, in in New York City, and after graduating in the the midst of the financial crisis, December 2008, after my last year of Division One football, I had a question asked: Where where do I did I want to work? as a postgraduate. So I, I did some some research. Uh, I had a couple of internships the year before. So a little me decides to get up one morning. The day, the day was January 7, uh, 2009. Uh, if you can think back to those times, how Wall Street, the financial markets were reacting on a daily basis. I put on, you know, some uh, an, an outfit. I put on a suit I, and I go with a stack full of resumes. And I literally take the PATH train um, from Jersey, where I was staying at the time, into uh, New York City. And I went to probably about 50 firms on Wall Street handing out my uh, resume. I got a couple of interviews on the spot and literally started my career the week after that. And since then, I've been learning uh, firsthand from super smart people uh, in the industry. I think one of the biggest benefits that I had as a a new guy in 2009, which seems like yesterday to me, but like looking up, it's it's 14 years ago, was to never, I I was indoctrinated in the fire. So it was never a, a pretty business to me. 
even though the next, I would say, 10, 10 or 11 years were, were very pretty. And then, you know, 2020 pandemic happens and a lot of confusion. But that, that cautious, optimistic approach to the business while always learning um, and always having humility, no matter how smart you were, you know, I, I feared myself a smart, you know, guy, graduated one of the tops uh, of my class in high school, college, and in, in my master's program. But to always have that approach that as much as you know, you don't know, you don't know anything and things can always change and things you can't predict the future. And to have that kind of humility approach and, you know, although times can be good, they can be bad and always kind of having that, that cautious, optimistic outlook kind of uh, started my career. I was with a, a made two major firms and recently during the pandemic, I decided to break away and start my own firm. It's been one of the best decisions I've ever made. We're doing fantastic and we're growing uh, in the middle. Uh, we, well, we started in the middle of the pandemic and as we're, we're coming out, we're, we're going full steam ahead and we've been, been do, doing pretty good. So that's pretty much my story, how I started. There are a couple of uh, smaller stories in, in, in the middle of that that, you know, maybe we can touch on later. But yeah, that was pretty much my my beginnings. You, you take a, a, a bullheaded linebacker that had a thirst for learning and just ran into Wall Street, grabbed the bull by the horns, literally. And here we are 14 years later, doing amazing and, and, and trying to, you know, pretty much take not only myself, but the people I work with to the next level. At the larger firms you were at, like Morgan Stanley, you know, on the wealth management side, what were some of the things that you enjoyed and the things that you thought were sort of the cliche bad things about old Wall Street, right? So I, I, I'll preface this by saying I myself have never worked for a major firm, right? So I worked with my father in his investment advisory firm, his hedge fund, which was a very small business. But I never myself had the experience of working in a kind of more traditional corporate environment. What what, what did you like and not like about that? Oof, that's a, that's a good question too. I absolutely uh, love the education portion. I think it's a wonderful place to to learn the business. I think, you know, just just being surrounded by some of the the I guess most uh, influential and uh, impactful research minds in the business. It, it was great. It was I think it was super invaluable learning wealth management underneath. I would say some of the better advisors probably in the world was a super <laughs> super. Uh, positive experience. And, and it, it does take you into a place where, although I wasn't related to any, you know, billionaires or multimillionaires, being able to have proximity to the, the standards and, and the practices that help people reach those levels and, and allow them to stay at those levels. So, and there are, I would say, educational points that are not taught in books that, that you can learn at major firms like Goldman Sachs and, and, and Morgan Stanley. There's when it comes to wealth management on the wealth management side, I'd say there is a science. There there are things you absolutely need to know that are taught in books, but I do believe there's also an art facet to dealing with people because as much as individuals would say when it comes to business, it's it's nothing personal. You have to leave emotions out of it. Uh, I learned very quickly over time that um, probably 100 
not 100, right? 95% of, of markets are absolutely emotional um, decisions that, 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 that create price fluctuations in, in everything you deal with. So learning how to deal with people's feelings and emotions surrounding the assets that they own was just as important of learning how to evaluate those assets as well. So that is something I would say, a couple of things that absolutely I would not trade for anything what I was able to learn at some of those firms. And I'm sure your dad. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now... Back to our discussion. Or people that you knew personally, you know, could put their arms around you and teach those things to you, Michael. Personally, unfortunately, I did not have anyone in my life. I'm, I'm from the inner city. I'm a Brooklyn boy. I grew up in the inner city of, uh, of New York City and, and North Jersey. So I didn't have access to that. So having access to that and building those relationships was definitely a plus for me. And the next half of that question, uh, what are some of the downsides, I would say? I think one of the major downsides is kind of uh, learning about your heroes a little bit more on on a personal basis. I'd say um, one thing that I would would tell any person that has an idol and, and a role model that they don't know, that they look up to, that they found inspiring. It's kind of tough sometimes to meet your idols and, and get to know them on a personal basis because the the idealization and, you know, the starry-eyed look and you think the world of some people when you get to know them um, on a one-on-one basis, sometimes it's not always the case. So um, learning that there is a disconnect between income and and, and value sometimes and and just just learning that though some people are supposed to have their their the people they work with interests best interests at heart that there are you know disconnects with that in the industry which is one of the main reasons that I decided to to start my own firm so I can have a bigger connection between what my values were and the people I were I was working with without having any conflicts of, uh, of interest you know, you know interesting as you're as you're saying that I think the if I were to frame it maybe a little bit differently, I'd say that the upside is you're learning how to – the soft skills, right? How to deal with people because it's more than just the portfolio management side. It's the relationship side. It's the sales side, which you know, you and I both know, uh, you know, like it or not, most advisors are really just salespeople, right? Absolutely. absolutely. Right? And, and that's a very worthwhile skill. And anybody that criticizes people that are, in quote, selling, it's like go live in a country where there isn't capitalism, right? It's like you have to sell. I don't care if it's – Selling a service or selling yourself to be uh, promoted in a company, entrepreneurial wide, right? Mm-hmm. So, but uh, but the same, but same time, I'd also argue that that's a negative, right? So, uh, if the industry is not what you thought it was, similar to the idea of meeting, you know, your, your heroes, and it's not quite the kind of person you thought it would be, I'd argue it's the same thing in the industry too, right? A lot of people get into, I think, the wealth management side of the industry because they're excited about the idea of trading, finding a stock, the intellectual challenge of it. 
But then they find out that uh, the first thing they're told is hit the phones, right? Start getting some assets. Right. You you, you need to, to build trust. And I think, I think is it interesting thing that you mentioned when you talk about the ugly world word of of sales. But if you know if you're in business, you you have to to show your value to people. And I think uh, the ugly part of sales is when there when there's that disconnect between how much you're giving people the value you give them and the money that they have to part with. You know, no one wants to part with their their hard earned money, but people are happy to part with their their hard earned money if they think that they're getting the value. If they know they're getting the value. There's a good feeling with getting value. Um, there, it's the reason we go to work. It's the reason we save. So when we do spend our money, we feel good about it, and it's the right thing. I think the ugly word of sales comes about when there's that disconnect. And when I talked about starting my own firm, it's it, it was to to I guess get closer, get more connected, rather than you know making people feel like they were parting with their their resources, <laughs> their money for the wrong reason. So. Whether you're a dentist, uh, you, you have to to show your value to people. You know, show the teeth. Whether you are a, a plastic surgeon, people like to to, to see the results of, of what they are spending their money on. So I just I just I do agree that that sales is an ugly word, but it, it's it's to me it's it's the most important thing in any kind of business um, because you got to show the value. Sometimes the sales happens the sales process way before you even speak to someone because their friend has received so much value or their family members received so much receive so much value that they they refer you to me that that's that's part of your sales process to give people so much value that they they bring other people to you so now if you're i guess what the negative term would be like a car salesman the the, the used car salesman yeah, I think that's a that's a bad deal. I don't I don't love that. Um, but people that are able to bring value to the world, make people feel good about themselves. You know, Mercedes Benz doesn't have to sell me on a car because the first time I ride in one, you know, I'm like, you know what, this is nice. I want one of these. This is very nice. And, you know, I go to the dealership and, and drop my hard-earned money on it, and I don't feel like I was sold. Yeah, and you look, I mean, I always make that point, if you don't promote yourself, nobody's going to do it for you. I mean, nobody's gonna be your right. Nobody's gonna be your biggest advocate except for you. I think, and I get it. Like, it, it's not a very natural thing for people to do. I remember, I remember back in like 2011, somebody once said to me when I was like on fire with a lot of these kind of macro market analysis. Somebody says to me, "I've never seen someone who's more promotional than you, but also right." And yeah, that was also when I started going through a rough time. It's like that was the top of my own sort of conclusions on markets. Tip of that work, <laughs> the top, right, but it's like, but but it, but it is true. Okay. I, I almost I, initially I kind of just thought about that. I was like, I don't know, if I should be is that a compliment or an insult? But uh, you know, as I think about it, as I'm older now, it's like that is a compliment. If you, I, th- I do believe that if you're good at communicating and self promoting, not in a grifter type of way, to use that kind of term you see on Twitter. Right, right. And right. that's also, there's a big distinction there, I think, between being a, a, a true salesman that has something to offer versus somebody who's more of a charlatan. Right. And I, I think, and it's kind of part of, you know, we talked about this a few times. My background was in psychology and economics coming out of college. And people ask me all the time, you know, do you get more use out of your economics uh, degree or do you get more use out of your psychology degree? And I say 100 1,000 percent my my psychology background, because I think one of the first times I talked to you and one of the things that drew me to you is your ability to know so much, but to still have humility 
while you were doing the things that you absolutely knew to be an absolute expert in your field and still have the humility to admit that you don't know everything and to know that something as simple as a fact that no one knows the future. The future is unpredictable and you to have the humility that you don't, but an everyday charlatan off of the street that claims to have expertise to, I guess, move in a way that they do know the future to, I guess, get into that salesman category. So the fact that I found you so knowledgeable um, and so humble at the same time, like you said, to be right so often and still promote yourself in a humble way, I, I think it was one of the things that drew me to you initially as well. So 100%, uh, I agree with you on that. Yeah, statement. I appreciate that. And by the way, it's like, if you understand that, the whole few understand this is me joking about no uh, few right. right it's like i keep going back to it, it's it's always meant to be a joke about overconfidence right and and the idea that you have knowledge that nobody else has and, and uh, you know it, like in my case i've been and i'm sure you've had plenty of stories like this yourself you know i actually do believe i'm humble despite the loudness on twitter because i've been humbled many times in my life right and you know, knowledge is good. I forget who said it. There's a great quote. It's like the, the more you learn, the more you realize that you how little you we've learned. Right. 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 And I really do believe that's kind of a mindset that is missing, unfortunately, nowadays. Right. It's like you can be the, the people conflate knowledge with being able to predict tomorrow. But the more knowledge you have, the more you actually realize you can't predict tomorrow, which is why I always say it's about conditions and probabilities as opposed to the call. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. 100%, 100%. And in psychology, it's a term, um, a study, uh, Dunnings and and Kruger, that a little bit of knowledge is is a dangerous thing because it gives the false sense of expertise. So the more you understand, there's a a big, big drop off with how much you believe that you know. So there are, I I think, a a universe of, of people that have a wealth of knowledge but because they have a wealth of knowledge, they understand that there is so much that they they couldn't dare uh, dream of trying to understand. So that 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 humbleness uh, sometimes being humble is great. I think being able to receive that message without being humbled, without the mistake, without the the pain, is really the challenge when it comes to like the world of investing, the world of financial markets. To realize that. There's no way that we can know uh, the future. So one of the things that I love that you do is you admit that if everyone is uh, not admit, well, you you state that when everyone is on the same side of an issue, it becomes a very, very uh, I guess predictive like measure, and it it's a negative in itself if everyone is on the same side of, of an issue. And I think it's one of like the things that you enlightened me on that a few years ago, actually, before we even spoke, that has helped me a lot in my business. So I, I want to thank you. Thank you personally for that. Yeah, no, and, and I mean, 
I keep going back to, I think people misunderstand what being contrarian is about. They think it's just saying what's opposite to the crowd. The crowd is right on average, right? It's like, uh, this. I think it's something that's also missed as a nuance. The crowd is round, right on average, but they're wrong at the extremes. And real contrarianism isn't about the crowd being wrong. It's about the payout in the event that the crowd is wrong of betting the other way. I go back to this expected value, right? Probability divided by... Pot. So if everybody view, being bearish, right, they, they could be right. There's no question. But if everyone's in, in quotes, everyone, right, we always throw these terms out, but who the hell knows what everyone means. But if a large number of people right. are bearish, right, then they're all betting on the bearish pot, let's call it, which means they're splitting it up against, amongst each other. So, you know, it's a smaller payout per person, right? It, it, it is ultimately about expected value. Now, to that point, this, I want to relate that to the name of the space, and you know, because this was the topic you want to kind of most focus on. The idea that, you know, as you alluded to, future is unpredictable, but we have a whole lot of data that makes us think that it is predictable. Talk through for you yourself when you think about investing. What are the things that you try to focus on to filter through the noise? Because I got to tell you, on Fint, what I keep going back to, I see a whole bunch of charts. I see a whole bunch of things that people yes. say is predictive. And I know for a fact, because I've back tested a lot of different things, that there's zero predictive power in 99% of the data that's often shown on FinTwit. Exactly. And, uh, well, unfortunately she just left, but, uh, there, there was a client of mine that just, just popped in. And this is the exact topic that we were discussing a few months ago that she's newer to investing, uh, to walk you through her story. And she's taking a lot of courses on how to read charts and how to evaluate companies and how to do due diligence, which I think is uh, super important. And it, it's like having to learn how to do your mathematics, but still have access to a calculator. You can double check the work with the calculator. You can double check the work by hand. And it's important to know it. But at the same time, the wealth of information on any single publicly traded companies, uh, of course, I'm not talking about privately company uh, traded companies, that is so easy to get blinded by so much data and overwhelming. I guess, convictions and I guess a consortium of experts and gurus online and in newsletters and in publications that, you know, drop their predictions of their buy ratings and sell ratings on things that you want to purchase. But at the same time, that there is, there is, like you said, when you backtest data, there, there's no predictive ability on the, the wealth of information. So you ask yourself, what's more important? Is it more important to learn how to do due diligence on a company um, or learn how to do due diligence on yourself a, a, as an investor? And I think that aha moment that uh, the world of investing over time is more about managing your, yourself and the the mistakes that you're prone to, uh, like going with the crowd too much rather than sticking with your basis and sticking to your investment plan and your investment strategy becomes such a, like an attractive like thing to do. It's like you're in the Garden of Eden in the world of investing that if you stay diversified and you're balanced and you continue to save, you're, you're going to do great. And, you know, that apple uh, keeps popping up of you'll be able to predict the next Amazon. You'll be able to predict the next market crash. You'll be able to predict, you know, the next amazing, exceptional opportunity time and time again, rather than 
you're more than likely going to hurt yourself over time. That's going to cost yourself a lot. And it's going to take a lot of time to, to recover from, and you're just better off doing due diligence on yourself uh, more than the due diligence on the company. Because like you said, there's a, a wealth of information online that, that gives people the illusion that they'll be able to predict the future. And I think it's, it's sexy TV. It's like that, uh, that viral tweet that, you know, everyone knows is, is garbage. It's a, you know, S post, but you know, we can't look away. So we, we keep getting drawn in by it. So I'm, I'm not sure if you, you, you share that opinion in regards to an individual ability to 100%. Invest, no, no, this actually, this is probably the most important type of thing. Anybody can walk away from any of these conversations that I do. I keep going back to this point. You know, it, it's people focus so much on charts and analysis rather than sitting down and thinking about their own risk tolerance, their own way of viewing the world, their own short termism, their own objectives. Right. And, and it's like it's not even in their it's not even in, in their in their due diligence process. Right. And, and, and it's always remarkable to me because most people don't know themselves. Like, I really do believe that. One hundred percent. One hundred percent. One hundred percent. And I think the other part of the, the of the data discussion is that it relates to sales, right? So if if you're a wealth management firm, it looks great if you've got five PhDs, 10 CFA charter holders, a whole bunch of CFPs, and then voluminous data and charts to show a prospective client. The client doesn't know better, right? If, they, if they're not in the industry, they assume that all this is more scientific, and that's kind of the impression that all this data gives. And that's used actually as a means of closing business. But again, it's not the way the world really works. I, I completely agree. And I, I think uh, the science and, and the data and the facts uh, do sell um, to people that are data driven. But anyone that is, is working with data, under, like they, they'll tell you that the numbers are supposed to explain an underlying story to you. The numbers are not the story in, in, in itself. So one of the things that, I'm learning more and more because as I go through this industry, I, I have evolutions is that a big part of talking about, you know, building your own wealth and building your own assets. And especially if you're not from the world of having absorbent wealth is going through like a, a, a sense of uh, discovering yourself. You don't know what you would do in a situation until you you're in that situation. Right. I think it's easy for the uninitiated or people that have never been in a situation. Uh, in the black community, we have a saying that, you know, never say um, it would never be you because, you know, one day it could be you. And w which is just a soft way of saying, you know, don't judge others because until you're in a situation, you don't really know what you would do per se, unless you have a, a systematic approach to how you make decisions uh, in a situation that that partially remove your emotion, right? Because you can't ever remove all of your emotions from a decision that you make, but you could systematically police your own emotions to know that, you know, you're not overreacting or underreacting to new information. So... Over time, just learning that it's a, a therapy process, sort of like a therapy process. As someone that is, is big on mental health and has been, that has a counselor, that has a, a, a therapist that I've been working with for six years now, the value in having those conversations with a the therapist and kind of having that, that, that's 
psychiatrist approach to discovering yourself, I think is just as important to doing due diligence as yourself as running a sharp ratio analysis on your portfolio to know how much risk you're exposed to in certain sectors. You got to know the risk that you're exposed to as a person, like how, and, and I think in the financial industry that we're a little bit rudimentary in that aspect where we'll be, we'll say something like, what's your risk tolerance? How long will you be investing? How will you feel if your market, if your portfolio goes down $7? How will you feel if your portfolio is up $9 down 10,000 rather than, you know, finding why those fears are associated, why the, the, the greed is associated and, and finding out more about the person, their goals, their fears, rather than just saying, you know, your portfolio is down a certain percentage, not knowing that the fear is actually this person is afraid that their kid will not be able to go to school. So the fear of their child not being able to go to school will be difficult to overcome in a logical conversation because it's rooted in emotion. So you kind of have to understand where the emotion comes from before you can even try to have a pragmatic conversation in regards to it. And I think the wealth management industry as a whole is, is getting better at it from, I would say, 2009 when I started, that maybe it's the Gen Zs and the millennials. So we're probably a little bit more emotional than than uh, Gen X and, and boomers and more in touch with our feelings for better or for better, <laughs> worse, however you want to take that. But like really getting down to the root of why those things happen. Unfortunately, I do think that Gen Z got indoctrinated into the greed uh, world of the boom of 2020. The pan- I call it the, the, the panty pop, the pandemic pop. So it's tougher to get rooted in good habits when you have too much success early that wasn't attributed to yourself. But like just getting to, to know yourself over time and, and knowing where your short, shortcomings are so you, you can address them and, and you'd be better off over time. Everybody, please make sure you follow Andre Jean-Pierre. Check out uh, his various uh, interviews that he've done on various media outlets. Okay, so he said, you know, wealth management's getting better at certain aspects of it. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on if you think wealth management as an industry has gotten better at diversity. Now, I'm Egyptian, right? My parents, I was born here in the States. My parents are from Egypt. My father, uh, as an immigrant, when he left Merrill Lynch, partnered up with uh, an African-American woman who was the 51% owner of the advisor that he started with her, Woodford Guide Management in the 90s. They grew to a billion dollars in assets. As I myself, you know, travel and talk to a bunch of advisors, I think you and I would both agree, a lot of the industry, I'm going to say this in a very kind of odd way, but it's true. It's a bunch of old white dudes. Right. And right. Which which makes it, I think, really challenging in some ways to connect when you're from a different culture, a different race. You may have the same knowledge set, but going back to relationship building, relationships are easier to build when you have a sort of common background, you can argue. How do you view sort of that aspect of the industry? Do you think that the the, the trend towards diversity is is improving? It needs more work. What, what are your broad thoughts on that? Uh, and that's a great question, and I'll take it a step further. Obviously, the the industry is dominated uh, by by older white men, and it's an industry predicated on on assets who who has the most money. So by default, 
the individuals currently with the most assets are, are older white men, and people tend to work with people that they 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 know and trust, and that can communicate with them effectively. Um, I think being part of the community allows you to communicate, uh, relate, and communicate with someone more effectively. So, by default, if you want the most assets, if you're able to speak the language of the people that have the most assets, and you can relate to them the most, that it's more prone to be skewed that right. way. I mean, now, right. Could we do a better like job? Opposites, of, opposites attract is not true when it comes to, you know, trusting money. Right? Not when it comes to, not when it comes to trusting someone with your money, because like um, I mentioned before, being rooted in understanding like where the emotions lie, where the feelings lie, where being able to communicate opportunities properly um, to and convey them properly. It's all emotions uh, based. So, like you said, people are just more comfortable um, talking and working with people that can communicate with them. Now, could the industry do a better job of educating um, and bringing up newer talent that, and breaking in uh, the ability to communicate with them? When I was at Morgan Stanley, for example, we probably had, oh, my 13 years there, we probably had over a thousand, you know, people try to quote unquote, make it in the business and, and, and break in out of it. I would say probably seven, including me, was able to uh, successfully make it through. And I was in North Jersey at the time from Wall Street. I went to North Jersey. In an 11 year period, I was the only black advisor that was not related to a senior advisor that was able to become an advisor in um, the state. So that's not by accident. It's by it's by design. Um, and I think the industry as a whole, you could definitely teach people the art of communicating with individuals, um, but more importantly, developing the the kind of clientele that they 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 want to work with. So I take it a step further that we we don't teach to me, probably one of the more important parts of working with people is communicating their their feelings, emotions, and habits around money. So I think if we taught more of the, the diverse demographic how to communicate that o- over time, they'd be more uh, successful. And I think um, success breeds Results. So right now, the the industry is less than uh, less than two percent black currently, and I don't I don't know what the numbers exactly right now for women and 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 black women are, but they they're they're shockingly shockingly low. Um, but the industry as a whole could do much much better in regards to diversity, and like a rising tide raises all ships. So if you had more people that were able to communicate with more people, um, these industries would, would do better uh, over time. So it's kind of like the old way of doing business until, you know, somebody comes along and, and, and changes the, the, the paradigm and shows that it is actually profitable to be able to communicate with more communities with people that communi- can communicate with those communities and earn their trust and, and do a good job for them. So the industry as a whole has a, a long way to go in regards to that. Yeah, and I, I, I wonder sort of the, what I was about to say, conditions favor the, the outcome, right? So is it function yes. sort of laying, you know, leveling the playing field where, you know, more and more schools focus on the idea of, you know, money management or awareness of 
of investing pre-college, right? Because presumably there's a there might be an education aspect in terms of where the focus to maybe even get into the industry is starts from. Okay, uh, I like that too. And, it, and it, I spoke about this with Financial Planning Magazine. There's an article that just came out yesterday about Jackie Robinson, and I'm I'm featured in the article. Uh, I'll, I'll retweet it on my timeline later. That talks about how Jackie Robinson made a push to get more individuals in uh, my community where I live now, Harlem, interested in financial literacy, uh, financial services. So he was getting more people involved in wealth management, banking, to get them resources to do better economically through business uh, and, and, and investing. And his proponent was financial literacy. And I think that is a super important part of, I would say, the triangle of creating uh, wealth, which would be good for financial services, would be good for financial services firms, banking, et cetera. But I think it ignores the most important part of this three-legged prong. So someone asked me, Dre, what would it take for an individual to do well financially? Financial literacy is absolutely important, but out of the three, I would say it's probably the least important. The second one would be resources. As we know, minorities are are just typically paid less for the same amount of work. Now, there are tons of reasons why people say that is. Being able to produce uh, the ability to negotiate salary with employers, which I think it's a communications gap as well, and just uh, the ability to get away with it by by employers um, because they know a demographic is underpaid, whether it be minorities or, or, or women. So having those resources, being able to earn higher income is important. But they asked me, well, the third part of that leg, um, what's the most important? I'd, I'd say financial habits. I think being able to develop the, the proper financial habits over time will outpace anyone's ability to be financially literate, right? Because it's not just knowing, it's about you know the practices of exercising good financial habits. We all know a doctor that knows everything about the body that still smokes and doesn't work out. Um, so someone would, I could ask you, is that doctor not literate on what it takes to, to make that the individual body healthy? They're like, no, absolutely. They know everything about the body. They can tell you every nerve. They can tell you exactly what you need to do, exactly why you know certain habits, certain things you put in your body are bad for you, why exercise is great for you, but they're not, they don't have the habits of working out. They don't have the habits of putting the right things in their body. So I would ask somebody, if someone was trained the proper habits of being a healthy person and they, they always, since they um, were able to make decisions on their own, chose the right foods, they developed the, the proper habits of having a certain amount of physical activity and never got into the habit of smoking or drinking, that they'd be better off than a doctor that knows every single thing uh, about the human body, but still chooses to have poor I guess, physical habits. So in finance, I think it's the same thing. If we can educate and instill proper habits in individuals, it will go a lot further than simply over-educating. Because I do think we are, as the Black community, as minority community, we're over-educated 
Um, we're one, a black women are the, the most educated demographic in America right now. We are overeducated and underfunded when it comes to a lot. But I also think that once we, we get into the habit of instilling the proper financial habits, and do I think that should start in school? Absolutely. It should be part of the middle school curriculum, more on the habit side. It should be part of the high school curriculum. Absolutely. I think most of American finance is super predatory, right? Like we go to, you go to, you're 18 years old. They give you a a gigantic loan that you absolutely cannot get rid of in bankruptcy, anything like that. So an 18 year old can already decide to take on more debt than, than most people who don't go to college can assume without having collateral, right? And once they go into a college campus, there are there's every single bank that you can think of on their campus ready to give them credit cards to, to get further into debt. So without being armed by our curriculum in America to understand like personal finance, understand credit cards, understand taxes, understand how to manage their own money and balance their their, their budget or what a budget uh, or expense tracking is as a whole. So I do think that we have a lot of work as Americans to get better at educating the next generation, as well as instilling the proper habits in them. And I do think that introducing these programs and and literacy programs and habit forming programs in underserved communities would do a much better long-term economic positive effect than one, giving someone money, two, over-educating them about money without, you know, instilling the proper education and habits in them, which is why personally I, I took it upon myself. I have three city, three cities that I'm working with to develop a curriculum pro bono to educate their high school and, and middle school students about personal finance. So when they do go into the workforce, they do go into college that they're armed better than I was armed <laughs> as a kid, you know, in Brooklyn coming out, uh, mostly me and my, most of my friends, we got college refunds. I was an athlete. So we got big refunds, we got credit cards. And, you know, when you're 18 years old, 19 years old, you think a credit card is free money unless you're your parents, not the school, your parents sat you down and had that conversation with you. And some of us uh, didn't, don't have the, the benefit or the privilege of having family members educate us on anything in the matters of finance because they weren't educated on it. And it's not part of a curriculum. I love that today, uh, in, age, in today's day and age, there's more information than ever on how to get started. But we have a way to go to make sure that we continue to, to to be on the positive track. Yeah, I love that focus on on habits, right? Because people are so focused on getting the right analytical toolkit and not focusing on the repetition that gets you to progress. Now, yeah, there's always ways of of tricking oneself into into generating habits. So even as we're chatting, right? So like I'm on calls all day long, right? Most of the time, and uh, I don't drink enough water. You're a machine. No, you are a machine. I, 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 I'm, I'm just a, a guy trying to make it like everybody else. That's, you know, it, it, the thing is like, as you know, right, this is an industry where you can, no matter how fast you can, no matter how hard you can run, try to run forward, you can still be moving backwards because you can't control the outcome. You can just control the, the effort, right? Which is, I think, unique in this domain of, of finance. But, but, you know, like, like for me, right, so, so speaking about habits, I'm trying to get into the habit of just drinking more water. 
So, and, and I'm so busy during the day, I, I forget to even just get a, a cup of water. So I got this, uh, this huge gallon jug, right. That basically I just, I'm going to start to fill up every day in the morning and I'm going to make it a point to drink it you know, throughout the day. Um, that's like a way of me nudging to create a habit because it's right there. It's, it's like a goal. It's an objective. I want to relate that to when you think about your own investing style and even the way that you approach financial planning for clients, you want to try to help them develop the right habits. There are probably some tricks or some techniques or some ways of nudging them to do the right thing over time. I know this is kind of an abstract question, but are, are there things? It's not. Yeah, no, no but, but are there things that you know can nudge somebody to, to do better when it comes to their personal finances? Absolutely. absolutely. And it, this leads back to one of the first things that we talked about. What was more useful what is my economics degree or my psychology degree more useful to me? And absolutely, the psychology degree is more useful. This is one of the reasons why. You're absolutely right when it comes to, to habit building and to understand that as complex and complicated as we all think that we are, we are all pretty similar on the inside. To And what we're talking about is how do we trigger a dopamine response for positive habits? It's very easy um, to synthetically have dopamine responses for negative habits um, because that's what they do. If you if you eat, let's say, a sweet, you can have a dopamine response naturally to eating uh, the wrong thing, which creates a cycle of continuing to do the wrong thing. Because as people, we are trying to be happy. So dopamine makes you happy. Serotonin makes you happy. So the question becomes... How do you take a, a positive habit and attach a dopamine and serotonin response to it? So there are things that I do uh, with clients to reward them for positive ha habits because unfortunately, especially in the world of investing, there isn't an instant gratification response to doing the right thing. It, it, it's more of a long drawn out process. And yes, it will, it will feel good and you'll see the rewards and you'll feel it and it'll be great over time. But how do you do that in, in the short term? That becomes the challenge. And there are some things that I do to connect positive habits um, with an instant gratification dopamine response with, with clients. And I developed it over time and it took time and, and it's actually been more successful than anything that you could do. Right. And the thing that inspired it was Pavlov's dog. Um, there was a study done before where a dog um, was given a reward for certain activities and they would get a bell to signal it. And then the bell started to be the trigger for the positive response. And even without the response, the bell started to you know trigger the, the dopamine response. So I, I kind of manufactured uh, things like that into my practice to get people that I work with, especially that have never had good financial habits, or they do have them and it's just boring and it's tedious. Nobody wants to save. They want, I want to go out and spend. I want to buy this bag, Dre, because the bag will make me feel good. And I know I should save, but to actually, you know, get them the same response or close to the same response for doing the, the, the positive habits um, through positive reinforcement over time. Yeah, it, it, it definitely works over time and it makes people more likely to continue positive positive habits. I'm not sure if you have a reward that you give yourself when you finish that bottle of water or you get halfway uh, throughout the day, but I 100% tell you that 
if you attach the bottle to another positive habit and a positive feeling that one, you'd never forget your, your water bottle throughout the day that you, you, you'd get your water. And two, it, it will become an instilled habit that you look forward to rather than something that you feel like is a, is a chore or a burden. Yeah. Like I'm a big fan of like Richard Thaler's book nudge which you know it's it's like everybody has choices but you can nudge people in a certain direction while still giving them you know free will to choose right to to make better decisions in life maybe for the last few minutes i'm just curious uh andre because i i noticed it on your on your side looks like you were uh you were involved in the nft space or maybe still are i'm just curious is that any part of sort of your um your way of, of looking at markets, or is that kind of more of a fun thing? It's more of a it's more of a fun thing. Um, in the crypto world, even though I do think you know blockchain technology is amazing, as we become a society that's more divisive and apart than ever, to have technology that kind of tr- <laughs> verifies and in, in kind of like a trustless uh, system where everything is is publicly verified, I think it, it's great. I just. Uh, but I, I just I, I like the NFT space. I like being on the forefront of technology. And like right now, like, for example, I don't have like client money in crypto, but I, I look at it often to. So when it the, the aha moment does click that if it's something that we want to add, we want to add. But NFTs, even as as an art buff, I, I don't see it yet. I think there's opportunities in the long term, but I it's not something that like I push on people or anything like that. It's more of a, a personal hobby. That's a uh, good place to wrap this space up. Everybody, please make sure you follow uh, Andre Jean Pierre. You can blame him for my spaces addiction uh, because again, please, <laughs> please, I love it. I love yeah, it. Yeah, no, he was the one that got me started, as I mentioned uh, at the top of the space. And I appreciate those that keep coming back to these uh, every single time. Thank you, Andre. Real pleasure talking to you. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.